All right. Well, we will be continuing today in our study of the book, The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace, More Than a Memory, by Richard Barcelos. Uh, Today we'll be studying chapter two of the book, which is titled Communion at the Lord's Supper. Now, a quick show of hands. How many of you grew up attending or a member of a church where the Lord's Supper was not really referred to as the Lord's Supper very often, but more often referred to as communion? Is anyone there? Okay, there's there's a few. So it wasn't just me. That's good. Um, you know, the title of this chapter in the book is Communion at the Lord's Supper, and the focus is going to be on the Lord's Supper as communion with the Lord. Um, and it is pretty common in you know, Protestant evangelical churches to hear the Lord's Supper referred to uh, primarily or even exclusively as communion. Um, uh, I recall this being the case in the church where I grew up, but also I recall not spending a whole lot of time in, in church thinking about or even studying what communion really means, even the word communion. What, what does that really mean? Um, this may be an experience that some of you can relate to as well. While it's common for Christians to have a general familiarity with the Lord's Supper, we tend toward being satisfied with having a surface level understanding of what the ordinance is and not actually developing a a deeper or a fuller knowledge and appreciation of what it means and Christ's purpose in giving this ordinance to his church. If you would have asked me as a younger man what the ordinance of communion was about, I probably would have answered something along the lines of it's a ceremony where we remember Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross for forgiveness of our sins. That would probably be a pretty common answer, I think, that you might get from a lot of people if you ask them what communion is or what the Lord's Supper is. And it's not a wrong answer, necessarily. Um, The Lord's Supper is indeed a remembrance of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross by which he has accomplished the redemption of his people. But is that all it is? Or is there more to this ordinance? Well, that's exactly the question that Barcelos has set out to answer with the book. And he gives away his position in the title of the book, right? It's the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. The argument that he's making is that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace more than just a memory. It's not only a memorial ceremony, it is a means of grace. Now, again, just as a reminder, what is a, when we talk about a means of grace, what are we talking about? What is an, an ordinary means of grace? Does any, anybody want to try giving an answer to that one? Go ahead, Carlos. Reading the Bible, the word of God is a means of grace, but as far as defining what a means of grace is, I'll, I'll give an answer from our church's confession of faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, and actually 
in the confession under the section on saving faith, of saving faith, uh, chapter uh, 14, uh, in the first paragraph there, it's not addressing directly what is a means of grace. It's addressing what saving faith is. But in doing so, it touches on this, and it effectively gives us an example or, or even a sort of a definition of what a means of grace is, an ordinary means of grace. In that paragraph, it says, The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. So it gives us a few examples there, right? You heard the, the ministry of the word. Um, the ordinances that Christ has given to his church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, um, these all are means of grace, and essentially what the confession says is they are means you know, by which the Spirit of Christ works within the hearts of believers to work within them the grace of faith and to increase and strengthen it. So, in other words, to, to sanctify God's people. And so these are means by which God is sanctifying his people, and they're, they're ordinary means, right? They're means that we're practicing regularly. Um, so Barcelos is making the argument, and it's consistent, obviously, with our confession, that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, means by which the Spirit of Christ is working within the hearts of believers to help them to grow in their faith and grow in sanctification. So there's much more to it than just the Lord's Supper being a memorial ceremony. And in chapter 1, if you recall um, from when we looked at that last week, uh, Barcelos included a very quick survey of New Testament texts that describe different aspects and attributes of the Lord's Supper, uh, where that discussion in chapter 1 was more like a very fast flyover covering a lot of territory at a high level. In the next few chapters, starting here in chapter 2 and going through chapter 4, uh, we'll get down to the ground level. We'll, we'll get in the weeds a little bit, if you will, um, and take our time expositing several specific verses in Scripture um, to see in greater detail how the Lord is blessing his people through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So here in chapter 2, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. We'll actually be looking at a, a little bit larger passage there going from verses 14 to 22, but verse 16 in particular is addressing the Lord's Supper. And in doing that, we will um, seek to better understand the nature of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. Then in the next couple of chapters, chapters 3 and 4, we'll look at two separate passages from Ephesians in order to understand how God conveys his grace to his people through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that's coming up next. Then in chapters 5 and 6, we'll look at uh, confessional statements uh, in addition to what we have here in the 1689, as well as uh, some of Barcellus's final thoughts on, on the topic. So with that said, let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will look at how verse 16 
helps us to understand the nature of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. And in doing so, we'll also address the question of what does communion mean? Going back to that question I asked before, um, what are we talking about when we refer to the Lord's Supper as communion with the Lord? What does that mean? All right, so if you have your Bibles, we'll start out by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll read through verses 14, or from verses 14 through verse 22. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, as always, the first principle we must follow in interpreting scripture is to understand the context of our passage. Because if we leave out the context, then we ultimately miss out on much of what we can learn from this passage. So coming to our particular verse of focus in chapter 10, verse 16, uh, given that the subject is the Lord's Supper, we might expect the context of the passage to be a larger discussion of the Lord's Supper or the ordinances um, or operations of the church at a broader level. But that's not what we actually find. The passage that we just read sits within a larger body of teaching that Paul unfolds for his audience in Corinth, starting at the beginning of chapter 8 and continuing through the end of chapter 10. It encompasses those three chapters, 8 through 10. And these three chapters deal primarily with the, the issue of idolatry in the church. That's what Paul's focus is in these chapters. He kind of, as Paul tends to do, you know, covers a number of different topics as he's working through it, but his main focus that he keeps coming back to is idolatry within the church at Corinth. Now Paul is issuing a correction to the church at Corinth, which was prone to syncretism, the worship of God alongside the worship of idols, along with directions as to how to worship the one and only God properly. Um, in the book, Barcelos includes a comment um, on this discourse in the section of Paul's letter that we're dealing with from uh, David E. Garland. And he makes the following observations. Uh, he says, Paul's lengthy, lengthy discussion of idle food, which is, you know, um, he touches on continually in these chapters, um, 8 through 10, um, that discussion of idle food is grounded in his Christological monotheism, which defines the people of God over against those who worship many so-called gods and lords in their sundry guise. As a cosmopolitan city, 
Corinth was a religious melting pot, with older and newer religions flourishing side by side. Most persons could accommodate all gods and goddesses into their religious behavior, and they could choose from a great cafeteria line of religious practices. The Christian confession of one God and one Lord, however, requires exclusive loyalty to God as Father and to Christ as Lord. So that's some good background. You know, in Corinth, even many of those in the church were um, willing to accept Jesus Christ as Lord, but they were accepting him as Lord alongside all of these other gods and goddesses that they were worshiping. And, and Paul's pointing out to them, you, you cannot do that. There is only one God and one Lord. And so when we look at the passages immediately preceding and immediately following our passage of interest here in chapter 10, we also see Paul providing examples of idolatry. Um, in the first 13 verses of chapter 10, so everything kind of leading up to this passage we just read, Paul refers to ancient Israel as an example of a privileged people abusing privileges and committing idolatry. And he exhorts the Corinthians to learn from ancient Israel's bad example and to flee from idolatry, as he says in the first verse that we read there, verse 14. And therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So that's what came before when he says, therefore, what came before that was this example of ancient Israel and their idolatrous practices. Then, if we look at the verses following the passage we just read, verses 23 through 33, Paul deals specifically with eating meat that was sold in the market, which had been sacrificed to idols. And so he provides practical instruction on how to handle this in a variety of different scenarios, um, both to avoid violating the conscience and also to avoid giving offense to others. So this passage, again, is sitting within a greater discussion on idolatry and warnings against idolatry. And so we're not surprised when we look at our passage and we see similar topics of idolatry and idolatrous meals uh, in verses 14 through 22. After describing the weaknesses of idolatry, or the wickedness of Israel's idolatry in the first 13 verses of the chapter, in verse 14, Paul exhorts the Corinthian church, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Then in the following verses, Paul seeks to help the Corinthians understand the sinfulness of their participation in pagan sacrificial meals that these practices are a form of idolatry and are to be avoided. In doing so, Paul ends up shedding light on the nature of the Lord's Supper in verse 16, and that's where we will focus now. So let's look at verse 16 in depth, and I will make a comment before we start working through this. Um, in the book, uh, Barcelos does a really great job of of doing a deep dive on the the Greek um, words that are being used here in Scripture and uh, breaking all of that down for us. I've summarized that here. Uh, we don't have the time to go into the level of detail that Barcelos did in the book, but if that type of thing is of interest to you, I would certainly recommend picking up the book and, and reading through the chapter because Barcelos does go... He does get academic with it. He, he goes into a lot of detail, but he does it in a way that's easy to understand um, and very accessible. 
Um, so uh, if you want to see even more detail, I would recommend uh, reading through the book. But we'll cover um, the key points here. So let's start out by looking at verse 16 specifically. Now, the passage I just read, I read from the ESV, which says in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, in order to help with our study, we'll also look at a couple of other translations of this particular verse, because doing this, we can get a fuller understanding of what's being conveyed here. So I've included an ESV at the top of this slide. If you look at the next one there, that's from uh, the same verse from the NASB, and it reads, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So there, rather than translating it as participation, they've uh, chosen to translate it as sharing. <coughs> and further, when we look at the New King James Version, and it's the same in the, in the King James, uh, we see the verse translated as follows. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, the differences there are a little bit more significant. Um, and the word that is being translated in various ways there is the Greek word koinonia. And so in the ESV, we saw it translated as participation. In the NASB, we saw koinonia translated as sharing. And in the King James, New King James, it is translated as communion. Then we also see the modifying phrases translated in the body and in the blood, right? In the ESV and NASB, um, they're translated of the blood and of the body of Christ in the New King James. What we see here is that <coughs> the different translations of this word koinonia and of the modifiers in the body and in the blood, these different translations help shed light on the depth of the reality of what Paul is communicating here. The different translations convey different aspects of what the original Greek text is communicating here. So it's not uncommon that we have words in Greek that have a, a richer meaning than what we can convey with a single English word. Sometimes there are multiple words that you can combine and that helps you to better understand the fullness of what is being said by a particular word or phrase in the original Greek. And that's what we have here. So first we'll look at this noun koinonia. Um, as we saw before, the noun is translated variously as sharing, participation, and communion. And so there are a couple of questions we need to answer here. Um, what does koinonia sharing, participation, communion mean? And what does koinonia in the body of Christ and koinonia in the blood of Christ mean? So to address the first question, what does koinonia mean? We already get a sense for what it means just by looking at the different translations. 
it's a sharing in something. It's a taking part in, a participation in something. The translation of the word communion also tells us that this sharing or participation is at a very close and intimate level. We're not just spectators at an event sharing in some experience. There's a closeness, an intimacy of experience conveyed here. <clears throat> Another way that we can shed light on the meaning of the word is by looking at how it's used elsewhere in scripture. In particular, it helps to look at how the word is used by the same author, Paul, and ideally in the same letter, you know, somewhere close to this. And so we actually do have an example where Paul uses this same word in 1 Corinthians back in chapter 1 and verse 9. There he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, that's koinonia again, of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In this instance, we actually see all three of the translations we looked at earlier, we see the, word, the base word there, koinonia, translated as fellowship. The translation of koinonia as fellowship, similar to communion, communicates that there is an intimate relationship in view here. But a relationship, by definition, involves multiple parties. So naturally, we have to ask, who or what is this communion with? Well, when we talk about this communion or fellowship, are we talking about a horizontal communion among believers or a vertical communion with God? Well, Barcelos makes the point in the book that based on the way that the word koinonia is used here and elsewhere in scripture, it's in the sense of a communal participation. In other words, it's a vertical fellowship with the Lord that is participated in by the larger Christian community. So he's making the case that it is a vertical fellowship, but at the same time, it's enjoyed by the body of believers. Um, the author includes a quote from Anthony Thistleton in which he describes the meaning of koinonia in that verse we just looked at, 1 Corinthians 1.9. I think it's really helpful um, what he says here. He says, normally in Paul, the word means communal participation in that of which all participants are shareholders or are accorded a common share. It is not simply or primarily the experience of being together as Christians which is shared, but the status of being in Christ and of being shareholders in a sonship derived from the sonship of Christ. Just as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 13, 13, means participating in the sharing out of the Spirit, which then secondarily gives rise to fellowship experience within the community, so the fellowship of the Son, here in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, means communal participation in the sonship of Jesus Christ. And so we have a little bit of both. Primarily, it's a vertical fellowship with the Lord that we're talking about here when we see koinonia, this sharing or participation, fellowship, communion. It's a fellowship with Christ. Although it does give rise to a horizontal fellowship with other Christians because they are fellow participants in this fellowship with Christ. And so for our passage in question, 
um, knowing that the term koinonia generally expresses a vertical fellowship with the Lord, a sharing in certain aspects of redemption and salvation, we can turn back to our study verse for today and ask, in verse 16 of chapter 10, in the Lord's Supper, who or what are we communing with? Now this is where the modifying phrases that follow koinonia in verse 16 come into play. We see in that verse that we share or participate in or have communion in the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. But what does it mean to share in the body and blood of Christ? Well, Barcelos unpacks this for us. And what we see is that this statement is rich with meaning for Christians. In the book, Barcelos provides a number of justifications looking at the grammatical construction of the sentence. And again, like I said, if you're interested in taking a deep dive on Greek words and grammar, um, definitely check out the chapter uh, because there's a lot of good information there. But to summarize what he says, um, Barcelos argues that grammatically we can conclude the following two points. Uh, the first is that one way to read the phrases of the communion of the body and the communion of the blood, or the sharing participation in the body and the blood, um, is to understand the body and the blood to be the source of the communion that Christians have with Christ. So, in other words, the phrase could be rendered present communion derived from or dependent upon the blood and the body of Christ as its source. The vertical communion that we have with Christ that we spoke of earlier, we have because Christ established it himself by the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. It's because of the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood that we have this vertical communion. The body and the blood are the source of it. That's one way that it can be properly read. At the same time, it can be read that the body and the blood are the objects that are being shared. Another way to say this is that the body and the blood are the common possession or enjoyment of the Corinthians specifically here and Christians in general. So the first reading is more clear. The communion we have with Christ and in Christ is due to the, his giving of himself on the cross for our redemption. The second is a little bit less clear. So what does it mean that Christians possess the body and blood of Christ or enjoy the body and blood of Christ? Well, Barcelos points us to a comment on this particular verse that's made, um, he draws it from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. It says there that koinonia in verse Corinthians 10:16 means participation in the body and blood of Christ and thus union with the exalted Christ. He then goes on to say, if Paul is talking about a present communion with the blood and the body of Christ, and if Christ is no longer dying or dead, then the communion he is referring to is communion with the living, exalted Christ now. This is present communion with the living and exalted Lord of glory. The communion must be with the present benefits procured by his broken body and shed blood, for his body is no longer broken, it's glorified. 
and his blood has finished its shedding. So notice what he says there. The communion of the body and the blood is a sharing in the benefits that Christ procured by his sacrifice of himself on the cross. The benefits of salvation, redemption, peace with God, and the present hope of a future glory in his presence. And where do these benefits come from? Well, they come from unity with Christ, as is communicated in the word communion. Barcelos also includes a quote in the book from Jeffrey B. Wilson, which helps to bring all of this together. He says there, the fact that Paul here refers to the sharing of the cup and the bread as a communion of the blood and body of Christ proves that the Lord's Supper is something more than a memorial meal. For the believer shares in all the benefits of Christ's sacrifice as he partakes of the tokens by which it is recalled but not reenacted. The bread and wine are vehicles of the presence of Christ. Partaking of bread and wine is union sharing with the heavenly Christ. So what we see here is that in celebrating the Lord's Supper, we participate in the blessings of redemption procured by Christ through the giving of his body and blood and flowing from the unity that we have in Christ. Now, before proceeding, an important distinction needs to be made here. What we're not saying is that the Lord's Supper is a source of justification, that we're saved by keeping the Lord's Supper. What we're saying is that the Lord's Supper is a sanctifying ordinance, that God blesses us with his grace in Christ through certain means, his means of grace, and that the Lord's Supper is one of these. Remember, this is the point that Barcelos is making in his book that scripturally we see that the Lord's Supper is not only a memorial ceremony, but a means of grace. In celebrating it, we have union with Christ, and we share in the redemptive blessings represented by his body and his blood. Now, there are a couple of additional points that we can draw from the verses that follow verse 16 that will help reinforce what we've seen in the text so far. So in verse 18, if we continue in that same passage, we read Paul saying, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Here, the word that he uses for participants or sharers in the NASB is not koinonia. It's not the same word we were looking at. It's a different noun. But what Paul is ultimately saying here is that there is an identity established between those in Israel offering the sacrifices and the altar upon which the sacrifices are altered. He uses this as an analogy to the Lord's Supper, implying that those partaking of the Lord's Supper are identifying with the sacrifice that it represents. Paul's point seems to be that to eat the food that had been offered in sacrifice was to participate in the cultic act of sacrifice. And so continuing in verses 19 through 21, Paul contrasts this with the feeding upon things that have been sacrificed to idols, which is, if you recall, the main subject that Paul has been dealing with in this section of Corinthians, as we talked about before. This is how Paul brings it all back together to the point he's been making. 
Paul says there in verses 19 and 21 of chapter 10, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. One of the main things to notice here is that Paul says that the Gentile sacrificial meals were a form of idolatry. What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Now, this is helpful for understanding the nature of the Lord's Supper because in juxtaposing the Lord's Supper against these pagan sacrificial meals, Paul shows us that participating in pagan sacrificial meals is a partaking in the cup of demons or the table of demons. And just as that is the case, so it is that the participation of the Lord's Supper is a partaking in the cup of the Lord and the table of the Lord. Each meal involves a spiritual feeding. That's what Paul is saying here. Um, Barcelos includes comments from John Gill on this passage, which also are very helpful um, in understanding what Paul is saying here. But uh, Gill says, the apostle's view in this instance and his argument upon it is this, that if believers by eating the bread and drinking the wine in the Lord's Supper spiritually partake of Christ, of his body and of his blood, and have communion with him, then such who eat of things sacrificed unto idols have in so doing communion with them and partake of the table of devils and so are guilty of idolatry which he would have them avoid. So putting it all together and then sort of walking backwards in order from the way that Paul has laid this out for us, uh, we can see how Paul's statements here help us understand the nature of the Lord's Supper. So we've seen that Israelites, when eating the food sacrificed on the altar, were effectively identifying with that sacrifice and apprehending the spiritual effects thereof to their benefit if they were doing it in accordance with God's law. Similarly, Gentiles, when eating the food sacrificed to idols, were effectively identifying with that sacrifice and apprehending the spiritual effects thereof to their great harm as they were committing idolatry. And so this helps us to understand that Christians, in accordance with the above examples, Christians, when eating the bread and drinking the wine of the Lord's Supper, effectively identify with that sacrifice, with Christ's sacrifice, and apprehend the spiritual effects thereof for their good and for God's glory. And so this brings us to the point of the text. Koinonia, this sharing or participation or communion of the body and blood of Christ, it means spiritual nourishment is brought to souls. It's a present participation in the present benefits of Christ's death for those properly partaking, is how Barcellus puts it. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Paul brings up the nature of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace in this text to argue against participating in pagan sacrificial meals 
which is idolatry. Communion or sharing is not horizontal, but it's vertical in 1 Corinthians 10.16. Since believers already have communion with Christ via faith, the Lord's Supper must be viewed as a means to nurture what is already possessed. The author quotes Malcolm McLean, who asserts, this passage indicates that there is real fellowship between Christ and his people at the supper. Though it's not a converting ordinance, the supper is a sanctifying ordinance. Like the word of God and the other ordinances given by Christ to his church, it is a means through which grace comes to us from Christ. It's more than just a memorial ceremony It's a means of grace. Through the Lord's Supper, we receive something from Christ, the benefits of his body and blood. We are served something from Christ. The benefits of his body and blood are brought to us. But how do these blessings or benefits come to us? Well, that's the topic we'll cover in the next two chapters as we investigate how it is that the Holy Spirit ministers to God's people and delivers God's grace to them. But for now, we can affirm the Lord's Supper is indeed a means of grace, an ordinance given by Christ to his church in order that Christians would remember the redemption that they have through his body and his blood, and through which God communicates to them his sanctifying grace. This truth is something we should ever cling to especially as we partake of the Lord's Supper each week. Uh, May I ask, Christian, is this what's on your mind each week as you partake of the Lord's Supper? Are you calling to mind your sinfulness and your need for salvation that comes only by God's grace through faith in Christ, a salvation that's fully accomplished by Christ's obedience to God's law, including obedience unto death, death on the cross. Is this your great hope? Are you actively trusting in Christ for your salvation? Do you celebrate the Lord's Supper with thanksgiving, acknowledging that God uses this ordinance to sanctify his people, and asking the Lord to use this ordinance to help you to grow in grace? I'd submit that we all fail at times to properly view the Lord's Supper as a means of grace and to seek God's grace in it. And in doing so, we miss out on a closer fellowship with the Lord, a closer communion with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So saints, let us seek God in this ordinance each week, falling before his throne and worshiping our King and freely receive the grace that he so lovingly pours out upon his own. Let us do this for our own good, and let us do it for his glory. Well, that is our lesson for this morning. Um, I'll go ahead and close the story.